When you share the gospel, you are sharing the good news. Why is it good news? It's because you're giving life to people who are dying. On Friday, uh, Aaron's company ran the endurance course. They call it endurance for a reason. It requires a lot of effort. It's only four and a half miles long. I'm thinking, how hard can that be, right? It's four and a half miles. Well, they carry 50 pounds. It was in the 90s. And, uh, and it's, not, it's not over even terrain. It's not like running in Kansas. It's, uh, you're running uh, over things, under things, crawling through the mud, under barbed wire. It's, it's a lot of work. And about half, a little more than half of his platoon actually failed the test. Uh, you have to run it in about 80 minutes. So I don't know what that is, about four and a half miles an hour. But uh, he, you have to run it in about 80 minutes and they failed. So he was running along. All the Marines are given a little whistle. Uh, they keep the whistle with them all the time. If they're ever on one of these exercises and they get into trouble, they blow the whistle. And that's what calls the corpsman over. Well, uh, as he was running through the woods, he's by, kind of by himself. Uh, some others in front of him had run by this one juncture. And he gets to a spot and he hears a faint whistle from the bushes nearby. Not on the trail, off the trail some distance. And he said to me, so I called out, is somebody there? And he heard kind of a moan. Uh, and he said, uh, I'm coming to you. Ran into the, through, the, through the woods, found a Marine uh, laying there up against the tree, covered in sweat. His, his camis were completely soaked and drenched. And he said, hey, are you okay? And the guy couldn't form any thoughts at all. So Aaron immediately blew his whistle as loud as he could. He told me later, they said, we heard your whistle all over. I mean, it was loud. Now, that boy's got lungs. And uh, he blew his whistle real loud, and the corpsman came running, found, the, found this Marine. Uh, Aaron had already taken off his, his blouse, the outer, the outer camis, his, his cami uh, trousers, uh, his boots, trying to cool him down. Uh, the corpsman took his temperature. It was over 108. Uh, that's, that's, we're talking about death here. This young man was very, very close to death. The corpsman uh, immediately called for uh, a Humvee. Uh, they have these huge ice baths uh, because of the heat that they'll throw people into. Um, they began pouring water over him and uh, just doing everything they can to try to get his body temperature down. Uh, and then, and then the, the Humvee was late. And so after a couple of minutes of it not arriving, that's how serious this was, uh, the corpsman threw this young Marine over his shoulder and started running through the woods back toward the road. And, uh, and Aaron grabbed the guy's pack and all of his gear, and now he's carrying his pack and this other guy's pack and running toward where the Humvee is. They got the guy back. By the way, he's fine. He is, uh, he is alive, uh, and he is better. Um, and it'll be a, probably a couple of weeks of, of convalescence, but he's, he's doing fine. But you know, uh, water is so important, right? And how does Jesus refer to the gospel when speaking to the woman at the well? If you knew the water I could give you, you would ask it of me because the water I give you is life. It's everlasting life. Now, we've been talking up to this point in the book of Galatians about this one gospel, that Paul has been preaching this one gospel, that all other gospels are false, 
And as Paul has been kind of explaining what this one gospel is, he comes to a place now where he's going to make an application of this one gospel. And it's really quite fascinating. Because he's going to answer a question for us, which is, what does this gospel mean? How do I apply this gospel? And Paul's going to make three applications. And I'm just going to tell you right off, they're, the first especially, it's, they're just a little messy. These applications include things like, because there's one gospel now, there's one people of God. Because there's one gospel, there's only one path to righteousness. And because there's one gospel, there's only one life, and that's life in Christ. So let's consider these three applications of the gospel. The first, one gospel means there's only one people of God. Now the church is comprised of people from every race. The church in Antioch was primarily a Gentile church. Look at verse 11. When Peter was come to Antioch, remember Antioch is one of the most important cities in the ancient world. At its height, there were more than a half a million residents. That's a lot of people in, in one of those cities. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria, and it's a fairly wealthy city. It's capital of Roman Syria, and it was Julius Caesar himself who took a fancy to this town, and he had built their forums. That would be like a coliseum. He had uh, a circus built there. That would be like a hippodrome. Uh, it's where they do the chariot races. He had the Roman baths put in their theaters. This was a, a really built-out city. It was also anti-Semitic. Uh, Caligula, who uh, predates Titus by about 35 years, attacked the Jews in Antioch about 10 years prior to this story taking place. So when, when Paul talks to Peter about the gospel, meaning there's only one people of God, you're, you're just about 10 years from removed where all the Jewish synagogues were burned to the ground and a whole bunch of Jews lost their lives. Now, 30 years later, Titus, the son of Vespasian, Titus is actually going to take, remember, he's the one who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. He's going to take one of the cherubim that's from the temple, and he's actually going to put it over the city gates in, in Antioch. So every time a Jew enters into that city, they're going to look up and see one of the cherubim that was in the Holy of Holies. It's a pretty, it's a pretty awful sight if you're a Jewish person. So it's a pretty, it's pretty anti-Semitic town. And on top of all that, it was very diverse. Uh, the citizens spoke Greek, but it's, it, there was Aramaic, Latin. There was actually a dialect of Aramaic that was pretty popular then. It was along a geographical crossroads of east and west. There are diverse religious groups in Antioch too. And, and there is still, even after the, the persecution by, by Caligula around this time, there is still a large Jewish quarter. There's also Syrians and Greeks and Arameans, uh, there, or Armenians rather. There are a lot of different people who are in this city. And, and because of the gospel spreading out in what we call the Jewish diaspora, diaspora, the, the, where Paul you know, is threatening slaughter and all the Jews flee Jerusalem. Some of them had traveled to Cyprus. 
there were some from Cyprus who'd come to Antioch preaching the gospel and established a Gentile, primarily Gentile church there. That's in Acts chapter 11. By the way, in verse 26 of Acts 11, they're called Christians for the first time. It's really interesting. If you, if you study the book of Acts, the believers in Jerusalem are called followers of the way. But we've, we've completely dropped that moniker. In fact, if I, we call ourselves, took a, our church name off the sign, and we're now the followers of the way, people think we were what? You know, some sort of weird cult. It sounds like a cult. Um, it, it, that, that has been completely lost. We are now Christians. This is what they called people in Antioch first, and, and really probably as an insult, but later became something that believers said, yeah, I kind of like this term. It, it basically means uh, a follower of Jesus, a follower of Christ. Now, Antioch here is where Peter arrives, and even though the church is comprised of people of every race, some want to divide it into camps. You look at verse 12. For before that, certain came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles. So, so before these people from Jerusalem showed up, Peter's sitting down, he's eating with Gentile believers. But when these people came, when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing they were of the circumcision. Those who came from James were there because they wanted a Jew first church. This naturally divided the church into two groups. You've got your Jewish group in the church. It would have probably been a smaller group, but then you have a Gentile group. And the Jewish group, because of this, uh, this, this group of people from Jerusalem, and, and most people do not believe James was in agreement with them, but this people from Jerusalem, when they came in, now you've got a division going on, and you've got a Jewish group, and you have a Gentile group. And the Jewish group are refusing to have what we call table fellowship with the Gentiles at all. Eating was, to the Jews, as many Eastern cultures observe, it's a very important event. When you sit down with a meal with somebody from Eastern culture, th this is really important. And you get that hint that how the Jews felt about eating with the Gentiles in Daniel chapter 1, right? Daniel didn't want to defile himself. They, they viewed this as being unclean. Pharisaism took this to an extreme. And what occurs now in, in this church of Antioch, this very important church, is this division of camp mentality that is now violating Paul's one gospel, theology. How does it violate the gospel? Because we're all saved sinners. Jews are no better than Gentiles at all. Remember Romans 1, 2, and 3, right? Romans 1, the whole world is condemned before God. Uh, Gentiles are wicked and evil, and there's, there's even this kind of uh, circle of, of, of degeneration as man devolves into great evil, and you see that at the end of Romans 1. Then you get to Romans 2, and what does Paul say in Romans 2? By the way, all you Jews, you're no better. You're just as bad. In fact, you're hypocrites. And then he gets to Romans 3, and he says, so now my conclusion is we're all guilty before God. And so Jews are no better than Gentiles, and the reverse is also true, by the way. Gentiles are no better than the Jews. 
In fact, I would say a modern application of this would be something like this. No Christian is closer to God because of its ethnicity. That word Gentiles is the word ethnos. It's the word ethnicity. No, nobody's closer to God because he's white or black or because he's from uh, Asia, because he's from India. You, you think about all the races we have in our church. One person is not better than another because of his race. And so any division along this line then is a breach in gospel practice. He says you're not walking according to the truth of the gospel. The gospel teaches us Jesus died for our sins, all of us. We're all guilty before God. So the conclusion then in this first point would, must be that we should be zealous for Christian unity. This is why Paul, it says in verse 11, when Peter comes, he says, I stood up against him publicly. He was to be blamed. Look at verse 13, because what he did caused all of these other Jews so you've got all, not, not the Jews from James, you've got the Jews in the church. They all get up and they form a Jew group. Now the Gentiles have their Gentile group. And Paul is looking at this going, this just can't be. And so I think what Paul is saying here for us is we must be zealous for Christian unity. And Paul just states it very plainly. Peter's wrong. By the way, fascinating. Jerome. You remember Jerome? He was the one who uh, translated the Latin Vulgate. Jerome was Catholic. Uh, early Catholicism doesn't even resemble close to what modern Catholicism is. But, but Jerome was Catholic, and because of uh, some elements of this Catholic, Catholic I'm not even going to say the word, because he was Catholic, some, some parts of that caused him to believe that Peter can't be wrong. Peter's the first pope. So actually, when it says, I was stood in the face, what, what Paul was saying is, uh, he's saying something like this, um, on the surface, I made it appear as if I was uh, uh, standing up against him. I wasn't really standing up against him, but because if I was standing against him, then I was dissembling, not, not him. Because I can't stand up against the first pope. And Jerome actually makes this argument. And, and then a whole bunch of people after Jerome go, no, 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 Jerome, you're wrong. Okay, And I would agree, Jerome, you're wrong. And Jerome now agrees, by the way, that he was wrong. <laughs> he, he now holds this view, right? It's going to be fun someday to see the Lord and for him to say, you know, about half your preaching. <laughs> oh. And so Peter's sin influenced all these other Jews in Antioch to form this group, even Barnabas, even his, his co-laborer, his, his, his right-hand man, the, the guy who brought him into the ministry. At one point in his life, his mentor as a believer, he also follows after Peter. So Paul has to confront him openly. He says, I withstood him to the face. Look at verse 14. It says before them all, it, this is very public. In fact, it's public and it's permanent. It's public because he, he goes right up to him and says, this just can't go on. And, and you're, the, you're the problem, Peter. I, I can't even imagine how incredible this moment must have been. Because remember, Peter is the one who's really the leader of the 12 apostles. Paul's not in that group at all. Paul had no 
real one-on-one ministry life with Jesus as far as we can tell of any kind. Maybe in Arabia, some speculate. But when he says, I saw the Lord resurrected, it was in that, that time when he was on his way to Damascus. But Paul stands up and says, you're wrong, Peter. And it's permanent. Not only did he do it publicly, he then wrote it down and put it in the book of Galatians so that now for all time we can go, Peter blew it. It's public and permanent. And and I think this shows how zealous we should be for unity among believers. We have to be very careful about the word camp. I use that word because that's the word I hear all the time. She's not from our camp. He's not from our camp. Well, what camp is that? Is that the Christian camp or the non-Christian camp? Because there is no camp to God besides the Christian camp. Any camp that's not the Christian camp, they're not believers. And if they're in the Christian camp, that's your camp. And so that whole, I think, he's not in our camp mentality is wrong. And I think worse, tolerating false doctrine and evil because he's in our camp. It's just as wrong. Can you think through the way Paul describes other believers, especially like in the book of Philemon? This is who these people are. They are fellow believers, fellow soldiers, co-laborers. They are the people that First John 1, 3 says, we have union, koinonia, fellowship together. And for us to break fellowship with them, doesn't that resemble what Peter's doing right here? I think so. Now, most of the applications, I will tell you, of this passage, the way I'm working through it, they try to apply it in kind of a big, broader Christianity, like uh, Christians everywhere across the face of the earth. And, and when you start doing that, it becomes a little more difficult. But, but I'm going to tell you, in a local church, this absolutely has to be the case. We cannot look at anybody in our church and say, because of your ethnicity, because of your background, because of anything other than the gospel, and say, you really can't be a part of us, that's, that's sinful, folks. And, and that whole idea of one gospel is there's one people of God. And in this church, those who have st- stood up in front of you and said, and I say, I've received in my hand a copy of their testimony. I have read it. And as the gatekeeper to membership, I have read this, and, and they, they, they are publicly testifying. They have been saved by their own confession in Christ, and they've been baptized. The, these people now should be accepted as part of who we are and not reject it. Number two, not only does the gospel mean one people, secondly, it means one path to righteousness. The theology of the gospel has some practical ramifications. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, verse 14, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew, Live after the manner of a Gentile. So you're, you're, you're naturally a Jew, but you're living like a Gentile. And not as do the Jews. Why do you compel the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? 
Peter here is the ringleader of the two peoples of God thinking, the two camps. And, and they both, they, this, they refer, the they refers both to Peter and the other Jews. They walked not uprightly. They didn't walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Now that idea of walk is your lifestyle, your choices, and uprightly has to do with doing the right way. So they didn't walk, they didn't live their Christian life in the right way because they weren't living according to this truth of the gospel. So what gospel truth is there? In Peter's case, and in Paul's confrontation, it's that our people, are some people worth more to God than others? The answer is no. Are certain actions necessary that make one better before God? The answer is no. This is why we have to be very careful about making cultural applications that somehow limit gospel living. I mean, the world is getting smaller, folks. It is getting smaller, right? I mean, we can all do the Disney small, small world. By the way, it's a terrible ride. Horrible. I will never, ever ride that ride again. If my life depended on it, maybe. But it, that's, I mean, it's just a maybe because it's horrible. Anyway, I hate that ride. But the truth of it's there. It's a small world. And we're starting to see how people live in Africa. It's different. How Christians uh, live in Africa is a little different. Christians living in Asia is a little different. Even people in California, you know, it's Kentucky, Tarboro. Uh, I mean, it's different, right? I mean, it's different, right? You can go, you can, you can see differences in the way people live. And sometimes we take those cultural things, that's how people live, that are neutral, that isn't, they aren't inherently sinful, they're neutral, and we make them shibboleths. We make them to be really important things. And what I'm saying here is, no, that's wrong. That's really hypocrisy. Because you see, first of all, Peter here, he's a big fat hypocrite. He, he's been living like a Gentile this whole time. And, and why was he? Because remember, he's sitting there on the rooftop, with the big, he has the vision of the sheep come down with all the different animals in Acts 10, beginning of Acts 10. And God says, right, he's up, kill and eat. And no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and then, you know, he has this vision three times. And then the people come and say, you need to go up and see this guy. And he's a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And at the end of Acts 10, in verses 47 and 48, all of a sudden he watches after he's preached the gospel that these people have received the Holy Spirit. And now he's baptizing them. This is pretty incredible what's going on. And he says, God has come to the Gentiles. Peter knew that. So he goes here to Antioch, probably to see what Paul and Barnabas had been talking about there when they brought the relief to Jerusalem, when they brought this gift from the Gentiles to the Jews. He's now arrived in Antioch to see kind of what's going on. He said, well, you know, this is how people live here. This is how I'm going to live here. And then the moment they come from James, he goes, I'm not living like that. No, 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 no. I've been living like a Jew the whole time. And Paul is saying here, it's improper to command the Gentiles to live like the Jews because we're one in Christ, ultimately because there's no difference in Christ. In fact, chapter 3 and verse 28, a, a, a verse that has been turned upside down by evangelical feminists. But, but what it does teach is there's no difference in, before God, in Christ, a man from a woman, a Jew from a Greek, a slave from a non-slave, doesn't matter who you are. Now, justification by faith, then, Paul says, is the way to true righteousness. 
So what Peter is doing by his actions is he is betraying this truth. If these Gentiles are justified, declared righteous before God by the gospel, by their acceptance of it, then, then what he is doing actually is betraying them. Look at verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus. That's the, the Jews believed in Jesus so that we would be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the, the agent, the minister of sin? God forbid. So faith, not law, leads to righteousness. No one can be declared to be righteous simply because he's a lawkeeper. That's not what makes God say he's righteous. First, because you can't keep the law perfectly anyway. And second, because this isn't what the law does. The law doesn't lead to you being declared righteous. The law leads to you being declared guilty. He says it this way, that all mouths would be stopped, that no flesh could glory in his presence. You can't stand up and say, according to the law, I've kept the law. God, you owe me sal salvation in heaven. You can't do that. The law is like a mirror. It exposes rather than deals with the problem. And so there's no difference then if a Jew accepts the Lord and if a Gentile accepts the Lord in, in his sinful condition and in his salvation which completely contradicts the Jewish line of reasoning because the Jews thought they were better. I mean, we have it all. We have the law. We have the patriarchs. We have the covenants. You go through what Paul mentions there in Romans 9. You know, we've got all these things. And, and yet, Paul is saying, that doesn't make you better. Let me say it this way. In a modern way of thinking, your efforts don't help you in terms of merit. Now, you should be working hard to serve the Lord Jesus. But, it's, but it doesn't help you in terms of merit. In fact, in terms of merit, your standing before God, being moral doesn't make you better. Being a church member doesn't make you better. Knowing the Bible, being able to say the Bible verse doesn't make you better. Missions work doesn't make you better. Charity doesn't make you better. Giving money doesn't make you better. It's always Jesus only. I stand before God, Jesus only. And when I try to add myself to that equation, Jesus and some of me, every time the some of me comes in, it's not an addition, it's a minus, it's a subtraction. And this is how the gospel is preached. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's who we are. Now, faith itself, it, it not the law leads to righteousness, because faith, listen, this is really important. Faith does lead to righteousness. Justification does not promote a freedom to sin. And this is the complaint the Jews had. They're looking at this saying, wait, 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 wait. If you're saying that I'm saved by grace through faith, then I can do whatever I want. This is really good news. And this is that objection to, to justification. But let me tell you, friends, justification doesn't promote freedom to sin. Some think that it makes sin nothing to be concerned about at all. 
But if by grace you are saved, is it true that you want to live a godly life or that you say, what's the point of living a godly life? I'm going to tell you this. That's licentiousness. If you look at salvation and say, it's my free ticket to live wickedly on earth and still go to heaven, then you're not saved by grace through faith at all. That's just wickedness. In fact, the, the doctrine of justification in the New Testament is so closely aligned with sanctification. They are different, but they are so closely aligned together that the doctrine of justification promotes an ethically righteous life. The, the gospel does not anticipate any kind of idea that a follower of Jesus would not be a follower of Jesus' life. If you say, John says, that you know him, keep his commands. If you say that you follow him, follow him. Do like he did. It's not the doing of it that earns you salvation, but it's the doing of it that demonstrates that you have been justified by faith. And so this promotes an ethically righteous life, that those who see Jesus are not those who desire freedom to sin. It is those who desire to turn from their sin. And if that's not true, here's what he says. If that isn't true, then Jesus actually ends up being someone who promotes sin. And that's ridiculous. Why would he die for sinners and promote sin at the same time? That, that's a circus act. That's ridiculous. And so you could say this. If, if I believe in the one gospel, it's going to lead me down the one path of righteousness. I need to hurry here. Number three, not only does the one gospel say there's one people of God, one path to righteousness, finally, life itself is found in Christ. One gospel means life is only in Christ. A return to the law is a return to spiritual death. For if, verse 18, I build again the things I destroyed. He, he's, he's tearing down this previous foundation that he had in his life that somehow he could merit God, salvation by his works. That's what he tore down. That's what he destroyed. But if I build it again, I go back to my previous problem again, that I'm a transgressor. The law makes it obvious we are sinners. It points out my sinfulness. And this is what the gospel itself destroyed. Do you remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 15? The strength of sin is the law. And what, is, and what does sin do? The sting of death is sin. You have to get rid of that law. And that's what Jesus is actually doing. The law only brings death. And if I try to return to law keeping for salvation, I'm actually reintroducing spiritual death into my spiritual life. It's, it's rebuilding of a legal system that actually was killing me. And it's because the merit system, trying to work my way to heaven, puts me back in the position of transgressor. I actually, it actually all becomes about my sin again, and I've just completely undone victory in Christ. I was, I was alive in Christ, but what was the point of that? I've now stabbed myself back in the chest with the law, putting myself to death. So death to the law is what brings spiritual life. Verse 19, for through the law, I am dead to the law, so that I might live to God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, here I am. I'm alive. But the life I'm living right now in my flesh, 
I am living that by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not frustrating the grace of God. If righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Salvation in Christ cuts us off from the law for good. I'm dead to it. It's not the pathway to spiritual life. That way now, for me, has been permanently blocked. No more. I'm not going down that path any longer. Righteousness by the law, if possible, would mean Jesus died for nothing. So that's not it. I'm not going down that road. Salvation in Christ means now my life is in him alone. And while this is not primarily a sanctification text, okay, it's been used that way. This is actually talking about not how I should live as I should, that's important, but really of who I am in Christ. My sinfulness is crucified with Christ. It was nailed to his cross. My old man died. It's gone. I, I put it off. I took it off at salvation. My sinfulness is crucified with Christ. I still have my flesh, but it's dead on that cross. It has no power over me any longer. And I rose from the dead, even as Jesus rose from the dead. So I live. Now, I live still in this body. I'm not with the Lord. I still have my old earthly body. And I still have, unfortunately, my sinful nature with that earthly body. But this life now is transformed, so it's no longer about me. It's about him. Christ lives in me, and everything about my present life is about Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the one who loved me. He's the one who gave himself for me. And then, and ultimately then, the real death that has meaning is his death, because in his death, I died, and in his life, I'm alive. And it's not by the law at all. And so the whole idea, Paul says here, is if I'm going to apply the gospel and I'm going to apply it right, I'm going to understand there's one people of God, one path to righteousness, and ultimately all of that's true because the only life that I actually have is my life in Christ. Now, friends, that brings unbelievably great assurance because I'm not alive because I'm good. I'm alive because he's good and because my faith is in and it's not that I now have this liberty to go out and just sin willy-nilly all over the place. No, rather, I now realize that the life I'm living now, because it's in him, is for him. And that's really what sets Paul up for the rest of the book. Let's, we're going to close in prayer in just a moment, but I really want you to think about this. This one gospel, it, it's not just salvation, folks. It has all of these little tangential ideas that kind of bounce off of it. But it begins with accepting that one gospel. And out of that, all of this builds. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this passage of scripture. Help us to understand it better.